0: Would you take your Bibles with me this morning and open to Psalm 29? Psalm 29, a few weeks ago we began a series that we've titled, A Series of Selected Psalms. Usually we work our way straight through a book of the Bible, but when it comes to the Psalter, there are 150 of them, and so what we typically do is kind of between other series, choose some selected Psalms, um, not completely at random, but nonetheless, uh, just some that we select and then preach a few of those and then we'll continue to do that until we work our way through the Psalter. We've done that uh, once in whatever the 22 years uh, I've been here, and we're uh, on our way through the second time as well. This morning, though, we're looking at Psalm 29, which in the Red Bible is on page 461. And if you are able, once more, I want to invite you to stand so that we might once more honor the reading of God's holy inspired and errant word. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forests bare, and in His temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as King forever. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. Would you remain standing as we pray? Father, first I thank You, we thank You for the privilege that You've given us, not only in calling us to Yourself, but in calling us to walk alongside one another so that we get together and sing and edify one another. We pray together, and now we sit and focus on Your Word together. And we know that the words that we have just read from Psalm 29 are the very words of God. So, Father, would you help us this morning? Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, hearts to love, and wills to obey your word for our good and the honor of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite lines from a hymn comes from Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? Wesley wrote that hymn during the time of the Enlightenment. So just as any culture, our culture in our day, we could describe certain thoughts that are going on in our culture. Well, the time of the Enlightenment, the the prevailing thought of the day was that no longer did we need God to explain anything. God and His revelation was useless. In fact, one famous philosopher said the enlightened man was the man who has thrown off superstition. By superstition, he meant religion, any need to appeal to God or His revelation. The idea was that nature gave us all the light that we need. And when you can combine the light that nature gives us with man's ability to reason… The idea was that you could actually take the light of nature and man's incredible power of reasoning and together we could solve every social ill there was, make every aspect of life better. Obviously, it was a time of great confidence in man's ability. Now, I don't want to tell you that the Enlightenment project miserably failed. It's hard to imagine now a few hundred years later looking around and say, yeah, every social ill has been solved. Every aspect of life has gotten better. It might be easier to argue many aspects of life have gotten worse. But back to the hymn. It was during that time and that prevailing thought of man's confidence, man's reasoning with nature's light that Wesley wrote, And Can It Be?, In one verse in that song, he writes this, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed Thee. It's obviously just a good verse and a song that has good biblical teaching, but it's more than that. In another sense, it was a shot at the thinking of the day. It was a shot at the enlightenment. Wesley was saying right in the middle of that song, you tell me that it's man's great ability to reason combined with, with nature's light that can accomplish every good we need and no need to appeal to God? Well, I will tell you My soul was fast bound in sin and nature's night. I was dead. I needed God to do something. And it was His light, His eye that diffused a a life-giving ray in my heart. I needed God to make me alive where I was dead. I needed God to remove the chains that I had because of my sin. My heart would only be free because of Him. It was not only Wesley speaking against the culture and speaking against the false teaching of his day, but calling those who were therefore in rebellion against God to see that their need was met, not in themselves or in nature, but in God alone. He was pushing back against the God-dishonoring teaching of his day. I think something like that is going on in Psalm 29. In one sense, Psalm 29 simply fits the pattern that we would expect in a psalm of praise. In verses 1 and 2, you see that there's a call to worship, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. In verses 3 through 10, you then see reasons why God is to be praised driven by the reality that it is simply by His Word, by His voice, that He commands all of these things that we read in the psalm, and then it ends with a word of blessing in verse 11. May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace. It is a psalm of praise, and it does follow the typical pattern that we would see in a psalm of praise, but I think it does much more than that. You see, sometimes it's easy for us to forget that the biblical writers, much like us, lived and existed in the real world. When when David wrote this psalm, there were peoples around him, nations surrounding Israel, who would have been teaching God dishonoring falsehoods. And one of the things they did is they created their own gods. And it was their own gods that they credited with the events of nature, things going on. We me remember the Canaanites, for example, worshiped the god Baal. And so, I think what's going on in Psalm 29 is not simply David writing a psalm of praise, calling us all to join the heavenly beings in praising God, which is indeed good and right and what we should do, but I think it's also a shot against the false teaching of his day. Calling those in moral rebellion against God to recognize the God who created and rules over all things. So, this morning, I want us to see both the elements of this psalm and the way that David speaks to the false teaching of his day. And my my hope is that as we see these things, we will find ourselves in a better position to recognize that we should trust the Lord, that we should rest in the Lord, that we should be a people of peace, a people of prayer. Of people who know that our God can be trusted and obeyed. So, what I want to do is simply walk through the psalm in four sections, and along the way, we'll draw some application. In the first section of the psalm, then, we see a call to worship our great God, a call to worship our great God. In verses one and two, David writes, ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory due His name, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Now, when you read the Psalms, when you read Hebrew poetry, one of the things that you can find is that sometimes the psalmist will write a line and then he'll write a line that parallels that first line. Sometimes he can write two lines that are just the opposite of each other, sometimes one that intensifies the other, but oftentimes they're they're, they're parallel lines that basically say the same thing, much as if, if I were to write a poem and I were to say in one line, shut the door, and in the next line, close the entryway. Now, those are, those are different words I'm using, but if you're reading that poem, you could say that's basically the same meaning. He's just repeating it twice. That's what you find in verse 2 when, when David writes, ascribe to the Lord the glory do His name, and then he writes in the second line of that verse, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. In other words, David is saying by this parallel line, the way that we worship God is by ascribing to Him, crediting Him with the glory and the honor and the praise that we know He deserves. We live in a world where everything that has been created should be exalting God, should be recognizing His greatness, crediting Him with every good thing and every aspect of majesty and glory that He owns. And yet, we live in a world that doesn't do that. And so David calls us to recognize the Lord, to ascribe to Him glory, to worship Him. Now, specifically in verse 1, he asks the heavenly beings to ascribe glory to the Lord, glory and strength. Now, that phrase, O heavenly beings, is literally the phrase, the sons of God, or sons of the mighty. So, So, the sons of God, when you read through the Bible, sons of God can be, at times, a reference to human beings. So, you'll think, for example, of Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. Remember when God, the Israelites, are in Egyptian slavery, and God is going to bring them out. And what God says specifically in Exodus 4.22 is that He's going to bring out of slavery His Son. This is basically the showdown with Pharaoh. Let my son go, Israel, so that he may worship me, or I will kill your firstborn son. But there are other places in the Bible where the phrase son of God or sons of God is used to be a reference to angels. So, for example, in Job 38 verse 7, Job, here God speaking in Job, is is reflecting on the moment when He created the world and speaks of the sons of God being there to take it in and rejoice with them. I think a reference here to angels, heavenly beings. So, when David writes, ascribe to the Lord, sons of God, ascribe to the Lord, is He uh, glory? Is He speaking then of the children of man, human beings, or is He speaking of angels? I think it's the latter. I think he's referencing angels. I think the ESV translation here is basically right. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. But why? Why would He be telling angels, the heavenly host, to worship God? I think because either, on the one hand, by saying this, O heavenly beings, you may remember from Isaiah 6, remember these these cherubim that surrounds the throne of God, and as they cry to the Lord, holy, 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 the the, the entire foundations of the heavens are shaken. They are magnificent beings. The thought very well could be, if David calls the mighty heavenly beings to worship God, and surely that includes everything lesser, you and I, a little lower than the heavenly beings we were created according to Psalm 8. Created, we too should worship the Lord. Or it may be that David recognizes he should praise God, and there's something in him that says, that's not sufficient. I need to to call all of creation, everything that has been created, even the heavenly beings to to ascribe praise and glory and strength and might to God. And this is why He's moved in verse 1 to tell the angels themselves to worship them. Now, I will say, this thought is not altogether foreign to you and me. At the end of every service, and we'll do it today, we sing the doxology. And you may remember, as we sing it, we say, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. And so today, even as we conclude the service, we will praise God and call even the heavenly beings to worship Him. But I think there's another reason that David in verse 1 calls the heavenly beings to worship God. It is because, as I mentioned, he lived among a culture, among a peoples surrounding Israel who recognized all kinds of heavenly beings who had a recognition in their minds that there were all kinds of gods. A god over the harvest, a god over the weather, a a god over fertility, a god over this, a god over that. And they they worshipped all of these gods. And so David then, speaking even in the midst of his cursed culture, says to them, I call all heavenly beings, every demonic spirit, every angel, everything that you would recognize as a heavenly being, I call all of them to worship the one true God. That's where this psalm begins. And then, beginning in verse 3, David walks through reasons why God should be worshiped, which brings us to the second section of the psalm. In verses 3 through 9, we see that God should be worshiped for the power of His Word. God should be worshiped for the power of His Word. Of his word. In verses three and four, David begins to focus on the might of God's word, on the might of his voice over nature. He writes in verses three and four The voice of the Lord is over the waters, the God of glory thunders, the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful, the voice of the Lord is full of majesty. This picture of God being over the waters, of God thundering, of His powerful and mighty voice speaking and reigning over nature, again, would be a shot to the false teaching of His culture, to the God dishonoring teaching that was going out. You may remember, as Aaron preached last week from 1 Samuel 7, one of the things that went on in Samuel's day is that the people stopped dedicating themselves and wor- to and worshiping the false gods of the Canaanites. You remember Aaron read last week from 1 Samuel 7, they, they would stop worshiping Baal. They would tear down the Ashtaroth. Well, Well, the god Baal, in the Canaanites' mind, He was the god of the storm, the god of rain. When the Canaanites didn't have their crops and they needed rain, they would would pray to the god Baal, whom they believed was the god who was in charge of these things, asking Baal to send them rain. Alan Ross, one commentator, says that if you look at Canaanite culture, there are actually pictures of Baal standing on waves of water with a spear of lightning flashes in one hand and a club for thunder in the other. Now, when we understand that, that the Canaanites would have pictured their false god standing over the waters, controlling the lightning, controlling the thunder, controlling rain, controlling the storm, we then see what David is doing in verses 3 and 4. He's speaking directly contrary to them. It is the voice of the Lord who is over the waters. Not only is it God, the one true God, who is over these things, but He rules them even by the might of His voice. In verses 5 through 9, David is going to describe the events of nature, a storm, a violent storm taking place, and you'll notice at every step it is simply God's voice that does this. So in verse 5, The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. The cedars of Lebanon would have been known in that time as the greatest trees of the day. This is why this reference is constantly brought up in the Bible. Even the cedars of Lebanon or the the lumber, the timber that comes from Lebanon is known as the best. These would have been massive cedar trees. And David is picturing a a violent storm with its winds blowing so strong that even the, the cedars are snapped in half. In verse 6, he makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a wild young ox. Lebanon and Syrian would have been mountain ranges. It seems the picture here is that of God bringing upon the earth an earthquake so that the, the earth itself begins to move. And waves. And so David here is picturing not only God sending these violent winds that snap in half the cedars, but even making these mountain ranges look like they're skip, skipping like a calf, like a young wild ox who, who a baby uh, would, would jump around and bounce around in his youthful exuberance. So these mountain ranges themselves are being tossed about in this earthquake. In verse 7, the voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. A reference here to lightning. As the lightning lights up the sky, David pictures God as the one who speaks and lightning goes forth. Or verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. He's already made reference to God being uh, the God of glory thundering, but I think this is another reference to the way that thunder itself even shakes the earth. There was a time a number of years ago when I was pretty proud of myself. I, our gutter came down from the house, and it stopped right at the corner of the house. But with water pouring out there, it could get under the house and seep there. And so I had run this pipe off my gutter, a gutter extension, buried it underground a few ways, a good, good little bit, and had it come up at a certain point. And I, I felt pretty confident that this thing would work. But the only way you could really test it was during a rain. So I thought to myself, well, the next time it rains, I'm going to go check it out and watch this thing. And as it does so, I will feel pretty proud of myself. And so what I did, in my great confidence and my ability, is I heard that it was raining. So I went and I grabbed my measly little umbrella, and I walked outside, and to say that it was raining would be an understatement. It was a thunderstorm. It was a downpour. And I thought, but now's my chance. So I went out there in my measly little umbrella with the rain coming sideways and just drenching me. And I remember kneeling down. I was was knelt down real low, looking down at this pipe where it finally surfaced on the ground just to make sure that the water was flowing there. And right at the very moment when I knelt down, the sky lit up. And almost instantly after that, Thunder roared so loud, it felt like someone was right behind me, like a bomb had gone off. And almost involuntarily, I just leaped up and ran back into the house. (laughs) My once proud heart was quite terrified. I I thought to myself, if that had lasted any period of time, I think I would have gone into cardiac arrest. You know, it it was terrifying. It felt like my clothes were shaking at a sound This is what David pictures in verse 8. The Lord shakes the wilderness. You could see the the thunder raining out so loud that in its roaring, the sound waves themselves, it seems, are making the wilderness shake, tremble. Verse 9, the voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. This could be that David is saying God is even addressing the small and minute matters, which is, of course, true. But I think this is continuing the same theme of this violent storm, that even the the roar of the thunder, the shaking of the earth, the earthquake itself is causing the deer to go into premature labor. This is a terrifying ordeal because verse 9 follows up and strips the forests bare. No doubt you've seen this on occasion. When we Lived in Louisville for two years. There was a uh, hurricane that had come up through Texas. and, And as it got inland, of course, it lost steam. But even up in Louisville, the winds were so strong that I remember getting out of church on a Sunday and driving home. And as we drove home, turning on certain streets down which we knew we had to go when branches were snapping off trees and falling into the road. We ended up losing power for a number of days. This is what David pictures, God's storm, His wind being so great that the forest are just being stripped of their branches. And he concludes then in verse 9, and in His temple all cry glory. That is, David is saying, for those who have eyes to see… For those who understand, this is a glimpse of the might and the power and the majesty of God. They are using it as an occasion to worship. They recognize that God is great and He is worthy to be praised. It may well be that Psalm 29 needs to be the psalm that we take with us into the storm shelter. That the next time there is a violent storm and you feel your heart racing, maybe even gathering your family together, it may need to be that we open our Bibles and we read Psalm 29 and we worship. And it's okay, it's okay that as we read Psalm 29 and think about worshiping God, it's okay that that storm produces a little fear in our hearts. Because our God is not one who is domesticated. He is not one who Lewis acknowledges. He is no tame God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So Psalm 29 reminds us of His might, His power. And if indeed the Canaanites would picture Baal as over this, having to work to bring about the storm, David says, not so fast. The God who created the world and everything in it, He is the one who controls all these things with His voice. And David knows, and we know, that the truth of Psalm 29 is not lost even on the unbeliever. You see, we might be tempted to think that we alone, believers, can can witness the thunderstorm and acknowledge this is telling us of, of how mighty and powerful God is But Paul tells us in Romans 1 that even the unbeliever knows this. Why? Because God has made His invisible attributes, Paul says, His eternal power and divine nature clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, when God made the world, He put the imprint of who He is on creation so that when we see the sunrise and the sunset and the stars come out at night and winds lay the forests bare and earthquakes cause the land to dance like a young wild ox. In those moments, every one without exception knows that creation itself is testifying to the glory of God not just the glory of a God. Paul says in Romans 1, we know that the God who has revealed Himself in Jesus Christ has made Himself known. And when God attempts to make Himself known, He makes Himself known. He has not failed. Well, then why is it then that the unbeliever, if indeed He sees this storm that David's talking about. Why is it that that he attributes it to Baal? In David's time or in Charles Wesley's time or in our time, why is it that that, that we, in our own time, might see that kind of storm and not recognize God as part of it at all, but rather say, "I I can explain this to you, simply taking the light of nature and man's reasoning, I can explain all this, I don't need any reference to God. Paul says it's because unbelievers' problem is not one of intellect, it is one of moral rebellion against their Maker. So Psalm 29 is another reminder to us that if men, if unbelievers, are going to see and acknowledge and give thanks to God as He deserves to ascribe to Him the glory that He is due, they need new hearts. Psalm 29, then, in other words, as we read our Bibles, is a reminder to to pray for unbelievers and to go forth and preach the gospel to them. Because the only way that men come to faith is by hearing the Word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And how will they hear unless we preach? And so another thing we can do in the midst of the thunderstorm is not only get together and read it and worship God, but we can get together, read it, and pray for unbelievers preach the gospel to individuals that they might believe. So David tells us God should be worshipped for the power of His Word. And then three, God is to be worshipped because He reigns over all forever. God is to be worshipped because He reigns over all forever. In verse 10, David reaches back a very far ways and reaches forward a very far ways. Reaching back, he reflects on the flood which is found in Genesis chapter six through nine, and he writes, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. And then he continues, The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Taking the first line, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood, you might think that David writes this, and it may well be the case, that David writes this in the midst of witnessing a storm, in the midst of, midst of witnessing God's power demonstrated over nature. And so what it causes David to do is to think back to the greatest, the most cataclysmic event of nature, the one that did most damage to the creation itself, the flood. And what David acknowledges is even if you think back to the flood itself, the the greatest demonstration of the power of nature, if you will, it was the Lord, David acknowledges, who was sitting enthroned over the flood. He was also God and king over that event that event was under His power and under His control. Now, this is an important point for us because, again, unbelievers would speak against this reality. I remember a number of years ago, one of our interns went to teach school, and one day I got a call from him, and he said, I feel my faith shaken today. And I said, why is that? And he says, well, The reason is because I'm teaching my students these ancient writings, and there is an ancient writing by a pagan people called the Gilgamesh epic. And they're actually writing thousands of years ago about the flood, about a flood that took place, and they're describing it as if their gods are doing it. And I I said to them, But but why is that shaking your faith? Because the reality is, if the flood happened, and it did, then we would expect unbelievers who were told about that flood or, or who had been passed down the reality of the flood to come up with their own understandings of it because they are suppressing the truth of God in their unrighteousness. In fact, it should have deepened your faith to acknowledge the flood really did happen because even pagan cultures are talking about it. But interestingly, in the Gilgamesh epic, the gods worked to unleash the flood and then here's the way they are talked about. They cowered like dogs and crouched in their distress. They were terror-stricken at the deluge. The, the reality in the Gilgamesh epic is the gods work and they, they unleash this deluge of water, and then all of a sudden they're terrified and, and taken back at what they've done, now completely overwhelmed. David says, Aside with your puny gods. Our God sits enthroned over the flood. And not only that, but David looks forward. Again, in the second half of verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. Not only has He looked back to the greatest natural, so-called, event that's happened in history, the flood, but He looks forward and He says, anything else that's coming, anything else that happens, whatever comes to our lives, be it a tornado or earthquake or famine or tsunami or you name it, God continues forever to be enthroned as king. There is no event that happens in our lives except that we are able to say, God sits enthroned over this. He sits in the heavens and does whatever He pleases. And then the psalm ends with a benediction, which is really another reason to praise God, another reason to worship God. Number four, God's to be worshiped. Because he gives strength and peace to his people. God is to be worshiped because he gives strength and peace to his people. Now what's interesting, I think, is a verse like verse 11 is easily ignored. Because we have a number of blessings, a number of benedictions in the Bible. We speak one at the end of every service. Every service we gather on Sunday mornings ends with one of the pastors giving a benediction, which is simply the quotation of a blessing of God from the Bible for his people. We find it here in verse 11. "May the Lord give strength to His people. May the Lord bless His people with peace." Now, I think because those are so common, and we get used to maybe hearing them often, that they are then easily ignored. But look at verse 11 again and consider this: The God who deserves worship, verses three and four, or verses one and two. The God who is so mighty that He reigns over every element of the earth simply by His voice speaks and the greatest things of the earth are laid bare. This is the God who David says in verse 11 gives strength to His people. So if you're in a situation today where you think, my lot in life is such that it is difficult and I don't know that I can press on in obedience. Maybe I'm lonely and I'm just going weary and doing good. I'm tired. I'm ready to give up. One of the things that Psalm 29 does is it invites us to appeal to God and go, God, would you give me strength? And the God to whom we pray when we ask that is not a puny, incompetent God. He is the God of Psalm 29. The God who, for whom we can read in verses 3 through 10 sits enthroned over the flood and does all these things merely by his voice and he invites us. Call on me for strength. Call on me to help you persevere. To work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for I am the one who is at work within you both to will and to do of my good pleasure. Maybe one more thing we should do Now that I've lined up your whole storm shelter experience, one more thing you can do during the storm is stop and say, God, as you give us even the tiniest glimpse of your power in this storm, would you strengthen us to walk in obedience to you? This is another reason why you want to let the Bible dictate to you who God is. Because if you domesticate God, then when you go to ask Him for strength, His strength is lesser. But let God be God. Let the Bible dictate to us who God is, even when we are overwhelmed, even when we are a bit taken back, even when we are so overcome with His majesty that we have to sing like we did in it as well, sing of Christ's return, speak of Him coming in glory, speak of that fearful day when He will judge unbelievers and save His people and we say, even so, it is well with our soul. We say, even so, because we know we are overwhelmed at His greatness. We know that He is to be feared. But David doesn't simply say, may the Lord give strength to His people, but he says, may the Lord bless His people with peace. Doesn't it seem that through our lives, peace feels so elusive? We're so often gripped with anxiety. Maybe we think to ourselves, you know what, I would have peace if I could dictate what's to come. Maybe you would think, I could, dict- I could have peace in my life if I knew how that test on Monday would go. I would have peace in my life if, if I could dictate how, how, how work is going to go this week or, or how my kids are going to be. Well, I've got one better for you. Because you can't do that. That's, none of those situations are entirely in your control. But how about this? What if the God who created the world and everything in it who sits in the heavens and is enthroned over everything, who reigns over life so that even the smallest matter does not happen outside of His watchful eye and care and decree and purpose? What if that great God, who's not only as mighty as Psalm 29 says, but who loves you, who did not spare His own Son, In order to make you his child, but sent his son to live for us, to die for our sins, paying the penalty that our sins merited, and then raised him from the dead. What if the God who is so mighty that Psalm 29 describes him, and is so loving that he sings over us as his children in whom he delights? What if that God were in control of what happens on Monday and of the next week? and of the next decade. You see, brothers and sisters, that is the reality. The, Psalm, the God of Psalm 29 is our God, and therefore we can have peace, trusting in Him, obeying Him, and resting in Him. I'll finish with this. I think Psalm 29 is written in some measure because David knew that his pagan neighbors had all kinds of thoughts, that there were all kinds of gods, each over his own task. In some ways, David is doing something in Psalm 29 like what Paul does in Acts 17. Remember when he went to the Areopagus and they had all these monuments to all of these gods, and there was one monument to the unknown God, and Paul says, this is the God I want to talk to you about, the God you don't know, the God who reigns over all these others. And when Paul introduces this God to them, he speaks of them as the God who created the world and everything in it. You see, it is interesting to think about, in the Old Testament world, when Israel was surrounded by these people who thought of there being a multitude of gods, God over this, God over that, God over this, God over that, how did they talk about their God to make their God distinct from every one of these other gods? Because you can imagine, the Canaanites, just that Israel has their God like the Egyptians have their God. And Israel was saying, not so fast. Our God is the one true God. So how did they talk about their God to show that He is distinct? If you read the Old Testament, they declared that it is our God alone who created the world. It is our God alone who rules over the world. And therefore, it is our God alone who should be worshiped that's what David is saying in Psalm 29. And what's so amazing is that the New Testament writers bend over backwards to make clear that when we think about Jesus of Nazareth, don't miss it. He is God, the Son incarnate. Because they say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Nothing has been made apart from Him. Or Jesus. All things have been created by Him, and through Him, and for Him, and in Him all things hold together. For He upholds the universe by the Word of His power, He rules. And if he is creator and he is ruler, he is to be worshipped. In Psalm 29, David says to the angels, Ascribe glory, worship him. In Hebrews 1.6, the author of Hebrews reminds us, showing the superiority of Jesus Christ to the angelic host says, When he comes into the world, his Father commands all the angels to worship Him. When we conclude our service remembering that Jesus Christ lived and died and was raised for us, who is interceding for us at the right hand of God and who will come back to get us, we are talking about none less than the God-man who reigns. And if that is who He is, why would we do anything other then trust Him and obey all that He has commanded. And so this morning, if you're not a believer, I want to plead with you to place your faith in Jesus Christ who lived and died and was raised. If you would like to talk to me or somebody else after the service, we would love to talk to you about becoming a believer. Um, And then I'm going to encourage you to make your faith public by by being baptized. We don't see faith itself but the way that the Bible has proclaimed to us that you can profess that you have faith is by being baptized. Now, if you are a believer and you've already professed your faith in Christ, then I want to invite you to come to the table this morning. And here's how we're going to come. We're going to have trays up front, and we're just going to dismiss row by row, one to the outside, and they will, uh, the first row will come around to the outside, get their belongings and then come back to the inside and the second row will follow and the third row will follow when you come forward there'll be a tray the tray has two cups stacked together the top one is juice the bottom one is spread you can take one stack of two cups and then return to your seat and then when we're all seated we'll eat together and then we'll drink together if you're in the balcony if you would you could just get in the line to my left if you're in the overflow maybe to my right just look and see which line is less and then connect you in the If you're in the overflow area to my left, Nathan Young will be over here holding trays, and you can just go first row, second row, third row, and so on and so forth. And then, again, we'll eat together and we'll drink together. As we do so, we're going to be singing together a song we often sing, I will glory in my Redeemer, reflecting that we have heard the command of Psalm 29 to ascribe glory to the Lord, and our answer is yes and amen. So let me give a moment of silence as the band comes forward. And as we get everything in place, and then we'll come to the table this morning.